Hello, my name is Dr. Hattie Masri. I'm an associate professor at Nova Southeastern University, Karan C. Patel College of Osteopathic Medicine, participating in the university's geriatric clinics, as well as long-term care. We present to you one of a series of talks from the Geriatric Workforce Enhancement Program on diabetes in the older population. It is my honor to introduce to you Dr. Nashira Pandia, a colleague that I've known for and have worked with for over 10 years, and I've learned quite a lot from her, and I'm going to learn quite a lot today. Dr. Pandia is chair of the geriatric department at NSU Karansi Patel College of Osteopathic Medicine and project director of HRSA-funded geriatric workforce enhancement program. She is certified medical director and program director with an active clinical practice in which she teaches health professional students, residents, and fellows. Dr. Pandia is past president of the National Society for Post-Acute and Long-Term Care Medicine. She has participated in the development of multiple clinical guidelines and position statements. She's recognized for her work in the area of diabetes in the elder adult. She's board certified in internal medicine, geriatrics, and endocrinology and metabolism, and holds the distinction of being a Fulbright senior specialist scholar. So Dr. Pandia, welcome. Thank you conference. so much, Dr. Masri. My pleasure to be here. Well. Let's just jump right into it. I just wanted to ask you a broad question about diabetes in the older population. Why is diabetes manage management so challenging, specifically in this population? Yes, diabetes in the older adult is a complex disease because it's affected by age-related factors such as frailty, sarcopenia, cognitive impairment. So the ability to manage a complex disease becomes uh, challenging. You know, even things like hand dexterity, uh, the ability to follow complex regimens such as injection therapy becomes challenging. In addition, there are also challenges in terms of how diabetes is managed because of variations in practice amongst, let's say, institutional staff and practitioners taking care of older adults. There are additional uh, health and psychological factors that make this a difficult disease. Patients with diabetes may have dementia or mild cognitive impairment. They have multiple comorbidities. They're taking many medications. And um, so the practitioner has to consider all these factors when taking care of a person with diabetes. And lastly, there are socioeconomic factors, such as the ability to afford uh, medications, transportation, the ability to you know, get nutritious meals. And then diabetes management in different care settings also varies. And as you know, older adults can transition amongst various care settings. Definitely. And as you mentioned here, that the individual, the geriatric patient that has the, uh, diabetes is not the same to another diabetic. Uh, person with diabetes as well. So it's just a huge spectrum of, of patients right. ranging from a robust patient to somebody with cognitive impairment in varying degrees, as, as well as the quite frail. So I understand that there's different goals in regards to diabetes amongst these patients. Indeed. So once you have one older person with diabetes, you've seen one older person with diabetes. This is a really heterogeneous population, as you mentioned, in terms of functionality, 
cognition, social support, ability to handle a complex disease. And so the care has to be individualized. When, when you're assessing a patient with diabetes, you need to look at uh, their, for the complications, indeed whether they have type 1 or type 2 diabetes, because type 1 patients are living longer. And what their goals and preferences are, what their values are, we also need to look at their risk of hypoglycemia, what amount of complications they have, whether macrovascular, microvascular complications, their functional status, and what their uh, level of self-care ability is. Yes, definitely. I just wanted to tell you about one of my patients seen um, in the clinic. I have this married couple in their 80s. And the wife has moderate dementia, so it's really dependent on the, the husband to take care of the sugars. And they live in a community, you know, and the husband is adamant about keeping his wife in the community. And he's very regimental. He's been taking care of his wife for quite a long time, specifically with uh, diabetes. And he, he's an engineer, he's a former engineer, so he brings out all these graphs uh, of his wife's sugars. He always, he always wants to keep those sugars very well controlled. You know, again, they're in their, their 80s. And consistently, that A1C is below 7. Matter of fact, it's 6.5, 6.4. She's only on metformin. Um, I mean, should I be, as a physician, be proud of that A1C? Uh, this is like a little conundrum for me, you know, because it's very hard to graduate that type of thinking um, and try to explain to them that we can relax a little bit on, on these sugars. Yes, I face similar challenges, and in fact, we sometimes even see, as you know, our mutual nursing home patients, they happen to have low A1Cs, and we have to rethink the goals. I find with families like this who have been very educated and have been diligently managing the disease that some re-education is required, uh, and particularly explain to them the risk of hypoglycemia. Uh, patients may not always perceive this or have symptoms, and studies with continuous glucose monitoring in older adults, who even had A1Cs of 9%, 8.5%, showed that they were going into hypoglycemic episodes during the night. So I think we need to explain this to families. One other thing I found it really effective is explaining to them the increased risk of dementia or worsening of pre-existing dementia if there are episodes of hypoglycemia. And lastly, I tell them that, you know, there are different goals of uh, care now uh, propagated by the national associations, such as the American Diabetes Association, American Geriatric Society, and AMDA Society for Post-Acute Long-Term Care. And we can talk about specific guidelines if you wish. Sure. I mean, that... With my with my first question, I was wondering, you know, in that wide spectrum, how about somebody that's, uh, well, I don't want to put a number on, on a patient in the older population, but say a 70-year-old that's robust, does walking, uh, is still in the community, and doesn't have so many chronic conditions, and is diabetic. What would you, what would you range that goal to be? Yes, so the American Diabetes Association in their 2021 uh, professional guidelines recommend for healthy older adults who have a longer life expectancy that the A1C goal is safe between 7 to 7.5%. 7 
And then for um, more complex uh, older adults who have comorbidities, maybe at risk of falls or hypoglycemia or have a high disease burden, the goals are slightly relaxed. So you can go uh, for an A1C less than 8%. And then now what has changed is the goals for very complex older adults, such as our long-term care nursing home patients who might have dementia or cardiovascular disease, low life expectancy, they're dependent for care uh, from staff. There actually now is no A1C goal for those patients. And the ADA recommends a blood glucose range between 100 to 180 and bedtime about 110 to 200 for those individuals. It's very interesting. And I, I don't want to go too much into the treatment quite yet, but how often should, again, going back to that patient, the husband and wife, you know, very regimental about their sugars. They check, he checks the sugars three or four times a day. Again, she's on metformin. Do you think that's appropriate? Um, or what would you recommend my patient? In a word, no, it's not appropriate. <laughs> it's, um, you know, an overly intensive approach. Hmm. Um, but at the, having said that, uh, the professional societies do not recommend a specific amount of glucose checks especially in patients who are not on insulin. So the guidelines suggest that you should check blood glucoses at a frequency which might help you adjust therapy. So I would say somebody who is stable on one or two oral agents, um, just to keep track of what's going on, I say to my patients, and this is my approach, you know, do about two or three blood sugars a week and do it at different times of the day, such as fasting, pre-meal or two hours after your biggest meal. Okay. And that helps you keep track of um, the blood glucose levels, detect some hypoglycemia if that's present, and make adjustments. Okay, well, I'm going to have to do a lot of convincing on my next round with them. Indeed. Um, you know, and the, again, with this population, there's a large focus more so on the, the avoidance of hypoglycemia rather than controlling the hyperglycemia. Can you recommend any strategies to avoid hypoglycemia that we could first tell our patients or we can adjust the, the medications? Yeah, this has become an incredibly important issue uh, in all the um, literature currently and the guidelines that are emerging, um, the avoidance of hypoglycemia and indeed prevention of hypoglycemia. So one of the main things I think is to ask routinely at every visit if they've had any symptoms of hypoglycemia, to make sure periodically that you provide hypoglycemia education, that patients know what symptoms they should look out for. And sometimes, you know, they don't know, know that. We also need to be aware about the risk factors in different patients of hypoglycemia. So age itself is a risk factor because of poor counter-regulation uh, in response to hypoglycemia overly tight control, such as possibly your patient, polypharmacy, or recent hospitalization, and of course, end organ disease, like chronic liver disease, renal disease, uh, gastroparesis, you know, sudden change in activity, undiagnosed endocrine disorders may all be contributing to hypoglycemia. Right. So I've um, made it a practice to really address that specifically at each visit. 
right? That, that same patient along the years can decline in renal function, the GFR goes down, and that, again, that de-escalation has, may have to be revisited as well. Absolutely. Um, well, I mean, if we should start a pharmacotherapy, what, is, what are the go-tos in, in this adult population? Dr. Pandia, what are some other strategies in the, in the management to combat uh, hypo oral, uh, hypoglycemia as well? So I always look critically at the medication list because, you know, sometimes you've known a patient for a long time, you get used to the medication list, and we need to revisit that, you know. So I try to uh, reduce the dose of insulin if they are on insulin, especially if they're on small doses of mealtime insulin. I try not to rely on that. I use basal insulin alone. Sulfonylureas, as you know, increase the risk of hypoglycemia. So if I can use another oral agent, I do that. And um, long-acting uh, insulin preparations are better than uh, short-acting or rapid-acting insulin preparations. I find education is the biggest strategy. And of course, now with the advent of continuous glucose monitoring, whether it's, you know, every five-minute monitoring of tissue glucose, such as with Dexcom, that's the system that's in wide use, or with intermittently scanned continuous glucose monitors, such as Freestyle Libre, that has changed the landscape of diabetes management. So it's given patients a lot of security. And is that just solely for type 1 diabetes, or can we use this in, in the realm of type 2? Now it's approved for type 2, but there have to be certain criteria, uh, such as uh, wide glucose fluctuations, uh, severe hypoglycemia, hypoglycemia unawareness, where patients may have blood sugars of 30, 40 in their glucose log and they weren't aware or did not feel any symptoms. So those are good criteria right. for prescribing continuous glucose monitors. I see. And I, I work in the long-term care setting. Um, and that's a much more regimental structure there. You know, the nurses are very regimental about giving the patients insulin at a certain time. Um, but, you know, there's always issues about prolonged sliding scale insulin. Um, do you have, what, why should we not use prolonged sliding scale insulin in a nursing home setting? So sliding scale insulin, as you know, for several years, we've all advocated and as have the guidelines that should not be used and on a long-term basis, there is a role for short-term use of sliding scale, or what we refer to as correctional scale. The patient might be on basal insulin, they might be also on mealtime insulin, perhaps, or they might be on a GLP-1 receptor agonist. Actually, I just want to mention uh, glucagon as well, since we're talking about hypoglycemia. The ADA now uh, has uh, three specific levels of hypoglycemia. Level one is any blood sugar less than 70, 70 milligrams per deciliter. Level two is clinically significant, which is less than 54 milligrams per deciliter. And level three is any level of, of glucose that results in physical or neurological impairment, where the patient cannot help themselves. The assistance of another person is required. So I include that in my education. Right, of patients right. and, you know, caregivers, of course. And what's really helped um, now is um, a greater awareness about the need to prescribe glucagon. 
And as you know, the older glucagon kits uh, can be a little cumbersome. Even, you know, seasoned nurses have difficulty putting it together in a timely manner. And now we have the advent of nasal glucagon and a pre-filled glucagon pen. And that these are widely available. So I find that, especially on somebody who's on an injectable agent, to have a glucagon prescription on board is very important. Is that for specific patients or just uh, uh, catering to a certain population? I think anybody who has had any episodes of hypoglycemia, any concerning numbers on their glucose log, and especially if you have patients who are very adamant about tight control, you know, and they're still trying to get their A1C at 6 and 6.5%, I would worry about those patients and make sure they had glucose. Any, any special considerations for a type 1 diabetic? Uh, I know we're, we usually focus on type 2, but there, there are plenty of type 1s in, uh, in the geriatric And older type 1 uh, patients uh, you know, often depend on caregivers or they might be institutionalized. So I think to have a glucagon prescription on board and to make sure that the caregiver or family member knows how to use it is important. I see. And going into uh, pharmacotherapy of, of uh, diabetes, what, what is the first go-to medication for, for these patients? So for type 2 diabetes, if the renal function allows and they don't have advanced liver disease or decompensated heart failure, of course, metformin is still the go-to drug to start with. And if tolerated, you can maximize the dose. And of course, with metformin, you have to remember it can cause um, B12 deficiency after long-term use, so we need to uh, check that. And I, I understand they relaxed the, the GFR uh, restriction. If, it's, if you have a GFR greater than 30, then that's acceptable to use. Yes. And if your GFR is less than 45, one should reduce the dose, mm. but can still continue to use metformin. Is age a, a consideration with metformin now, or it's, we're just not currently? Mm. Okay. Um, any anything else? I mean, so if uh, metformin doesn't work, what's probably the next go-to? Yeah. So that's a great question, it, and the answer is it depends on the patient. Okay. So if a patient has known cardiovascular complications or multiple risk factors then one should think of a GLP-1 receptor agonist after metformin. Okay. And if they have advanced kidney disease or heart failure with reduced ejection fraction, then the go-to class of drug seems to be the SGLT2 inhibitors because that's where the study evidence lies. So I noticed you didn't mention insulin yet. So GLP receptor agonist over insulin? Before insulin. So if one is thinking of an injectable agent. Let's say you have a patient who's on metformin, possibly a sulfonylurea or uh, another class, a thiazolidine dione. And if you haven't reached your goal, you're thinking of uh, advancing therapy or intensifying therapy to reach your goal. In the past, we would have automatically started on basal insulin. But in the past two or three years, that thinking has changed. So instead of basal insulin, what's recommended is a GLP-1 receptor agonist. And there are several injectable ones, as you know, but now there's also uh, one uh, GLP-1 receptor agonist that's an oral agent. 
Interesting. Oh, that would be a great benefit. It'd be much easier for it compliance would, because reasons. there are still patients who are very uh, hesitant to use uh, an injectable agent, and um, you know this might be a good transition. The advantage, of course, with the GLP-1 receptor agonists is most of them are, can be used on a weekly basis. So it's not like a daily injection of insulin or multiple injections of insulin. Is there a difference in cardiovascular reduction risks between insulin and uh, GLP-1 receptor agonists? Yeah, that's a difficult question to answer. Uh, I don't think the studies have been done to compare the two. The studies have been done to compare a GLP-1 receptor agonist to usual treatment or versus, you know, addition of a GLP-1 receptor agonist versus placebo in improving cardiovascular events, the so-called MACE events, major adverse cardiovascular events. Okay. Um, well, in the year 2021 and on, is there still a role for sulfonylureas? Yeah, that's a difficult question. It. They can be used if the patient uh, is having trouble um, acquiring other medications because they're cheaper. I'm still hesitant about using them if I'm worried about hypoglycemia. And as I advance my therapy with other agents, which may include GLP-1 receptor agonists and even basal insulin following that, I try to reduce the dose of sulfonylurea. Okay. There is some evidence, uh, and this has always gone back and forth, that there may be some adverse cardiovascular events with sulfonylureas. Right, and and they definitely they have a wide spectrum of, of different half lives. They do, and, and you know one has to be careful about renal function. And what we do know is uh, diabetes overall, from the NHANES data, we know that diabetes is overtreated in older adults, and those. The proportion of patients who had A1C less than 7% were those on insulin plus sulfonylurea. Mm. So I think that's the combination to be very aware about. Okay. And uh, Dr. Pandia, how about any comments on the DPP-4 inhibitors? The, so they're certainly a good class of drugs. And as you know, their properties are to increase endogenous levels of GLP-1 receptor agonists by preventing their breakdown in the gut. Um, they're not very potent drugs. A1C lowering is about 0.5 to 0.8%. And certainly they have a role in the progression of oral therapy. The thing to remember is if you start somebody on a GLP-1 receptor agonist, which is in itself, you know, a GLP-1, obviously, then you cannot have a DPP-4 inhibitor also in the same treatment regimen. Hmm. And... Uh now there's newer, there's even more newer agents such as the sodium glucose co-transporter co two inhibitors. And yeah. is there a certain uh, demographic that we should use in those patients? Yeah, that's a great question. That so the so-called SGLT two inhibitors promote the loss of glucose in the urine, which is a very novel way of treating diabetes because one of the problems in type two diabetes is excessive reabsorption of glucose in the renal system. So the downside of those drugs, or the known side effects, are thirst, polyuria, some increase in urogenital infections, especially fungal infections. So I warn patients about those side effects. I think for your ambulatory patients and maybe the not-so-impaired patient, it's a good choice 
it definitely is a recommended choice for people who have chronic kidney disease as a complication because the studies show a reduction of worsening of renal complications. And they're definitely beneficial in people with heart failure with reduced ejection fraction. Yes. Having said that, though, you have to select um, uh, the patient carefully. I think if I have a very frail patient who is at risk of dehydration, who cannot uh, supplement their fluids by themselves, has a free history of frequent urogenital infections, then I'd be a little more concerned about using this drug uh, or this category in that patient. That, that, that's always been something curious for me because, you know, with this new theme of relaxing the, uh, the A1C, the postprandial uh, sugars are going to be above 180, and with 180, you know, we're going to start diuresing. And are these patients, I mean, a very frail patient, are they more prone to dehydration with these relaxed sugars and A1Cs? I'm not sure if it's the relaxed uh, glucose levels themselves. I think they're prone to polyuria, certainly if there's wide fluctuation of blood glucose levels. And, of course, the SGLT2 class of drugs does cause uh, urinary frequency by virtue of its action because there is so much glycosuria. Interesting. I think they, in, in and of themselves, in a frail older person who cannot replete fluids by themselves, there is a risk of dehydration. So that's, of course, when knowledge of the patient and close monitoring comes into play. And Dr. Pandia, my final question is about COVID and diabetics, people with diabetes, I should say. Well said. <laughs> we should not. You corrected Yeah. Before you corrected me, I mentioned that. Yes. So... Um, any comments about that? Yes, this has become a, a huge area of study, and already hundreds of papers have been published on COVID patients and diabetes. So what we know right now is that people with diabetes are not more likely to get COVID than those without diabetes. However, people with diabetes who have COVID-19 infection don't do as well. They're two or three times more likely to have critical illness um, their disease severity is higher and survival is lower if they have diabetes, particularly if they have complications of diabetes, such as hypertension, chronic kidney disease, hyperlipidemia, stroke, cancer, etc. They don't do as well. They have higher disease severity and higher mortality. People with long-standing diabetes and those with type 1 diabetes actually have worse outcomes. Interesting is, you know, there's been some discussion about is COVID-19 responsible for new onset of diabetes, and that's really not clear at this time. However, we know that this is a very inflammatory condition. There's a high degree of metabolic stress, propensity to ketoacidosis, and uh, insulin resistance. So patients who have COVID-19 and diabetes are difficult to control. And even patients without a history of diabetes should be screened. Their glucose levels should be checked, whether they've developed insulin resistance at that point. And we know that uncontrolled hyperglycemia is associated with higher in-hospital mortality. There is also data that blood glucose levels over 180 consistently in the hospitalized patient 
uh, is associated with, with worse outcomes. So the message is really adequate hydration, liberal use of insulin in the hospitalized patient, discontinuation of metformin if they're unstable, and the role of all the other oral agents is very minimal in the hospitalized patient with COVID-19. I think insulin is still the mainstay, including even insulin pumps. And we know that it's still fine to continue ACE inhibitors or angiotensin receptor blockers in patients who have cardiovascular disease or renal disease. If they're already on those agents, it's fine to continue that. Steroids, of course, are now widely used in patients with COVID-19, and we can use them in people with diabetes who are hospitalized and merit the addition of steroids. However, blood glucose, the management will be more challenging, and so you really have to stay on top of that and try to get uh, you know, your glucose levels to be under 180. I really want to thank Dr. Nashira Pandia and bringing us this very helpful information that we could implement in our clinics, long-term care, as well as the hospitals. So thank you so much, Dr. Pandia, for that valuable information. It's been my pleasure. It's been a great discussion, Dr. Mansri. Thank you.